Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> that was quite impressive, James. Quite impressive. Are you going to take the stairs? I'm taking the slow way in. <laughs> Christ. I think there was a really um, quite stark difference between the way you got in, James, compared to Nikki, Alex, and Simon. Definitely. How long till I acclimatise? Well, I think you need to move. Give it, give it uh, a minute. Okay, I'm good. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, and it's our summer special. So that's with me, Harry Lewis, and I've managed to drag James Titko out of the office too. Is it a hot one where you are at the moment? Because it certainly feels like it has been here over the past few days. And to beat the heat before the show kicks off properly, it looks like James and I are going to get lured in for a wild dip in the River Cam in Cambridge. James and I are joined by Nicky Blanning, gliding effortlessly through the water alongside Alex Buxton. And here on the banks with me is Simon Crowhurst. Coming down on such a beautiful day, where are we and, and what are we looking at? Uh, we're on Sheep's Green. We're looking at the River Cam, banked with uh, beautiful willows. So I can see my, my wife and my friend Nicky in the water, swimming along, enjoying the, the water, which at 21 degrees is, is warmer than it usually is during the year. Wild swimming has increased in popularity immensely over the last few years and we've got so many applicants to, to join our swimming club that we, we can't cope with the numbers. And you said it was 21 degrees, which sounds actually quite warm. I'm quaking in my boots about getting in, Simon, because I hate the cold. But 21, how can you prove that that's 21 degrees? Well, we've got a thermometer in the river there, so we can take a look at the, uh, at the oh, actual let's measurement. It. Let's do that. <laughs> So here we are with an old-fashioned analogue thermometer. Take it quickly out of the water, and before it has time to change, it's just under 21 degrees, and you can see the liquid falling immediately as it comes out of the water because it's cooling down in the in the air, working a bit like a, a fridge. <laughs> James, you've just dro- jumped out of the water as well. A valiant effort, I thought, when you got in. How was it? Yeah, it's definitely a cliche, but it's lovely once you're in. Simon, you said that at the moment your particular swimming club it's literally just got too many applicants to be able to support. Do you think that's representative of the rest of the rivers and wild swimming clubs around the UK? Well, there's been a tremendous surge in interest and activity of wild swimming. As long as people do it safely and responsibly, I don't think it's a problem. Uh, where people just charge into the water without any experience, without being strong swimmers, then you can have problems and people can get into difficulty very quickly. Nikki and Alex, you've swum over to us graciously, I might add. There wasn't quite the um, calamity of when James got in and he was holding his breath as hard as possible. What's it like? How's the river? Oh, it's really beautiful, honestly. It's absolutely gorgeous. I could stay in it for hours. Well, I know for a fact, Nikki, you've actually been out twice today now. You were up this morning, weren't you? I was, yes. I swam in the Lido and uh, I try and swim twice a day at the moment in the summer while it's so nice. I mean, there are health benefits that are supposedly associated with getting yourself in cold water. Obviously, exercise is good. You're in nature, so it's a little perk for your mental health, isn't it? Are these things you think about, or is it just the fact that, you know, I've got, I've got a bit of extra energy, I'm up nice and early, why not get out there and into the wild? 
It, it becomes an addiction, I think Nikki would probably <laughs> agree with this. It's an addiction. It's like your daily fix yeah. of something that, um, you know, it's a good addiction to have, yeah. I hasten to add. It's Is one it? that has a positive effect on your physical and your mental health. Yeah. So I find it punctuates the day really well. When I've been for a swim, it almost doubles the enjoyment that you get out of the day. On a day like today, it makes complete sense to make use of it, seeing as it's on the doorstep. Are you guys coming out here when it's not warm and sunny, when it's not 21 degrees in the river? Yes, I think the coldest I've swum has been actually, the, the river's been frozen and I've cut a, a cut a circle in the ice and swum round in a circle. You can't see it, but I'm astonished. Nikki, are you, are you, was this witnessed by anybody? Yeah. I, yes, I have, I have photographs. Yes. Yes. We've waded through snow to get to the river and you can't even see the edge of where We've waded through floods. Floods Flooded and snow. water. That's what I mean by an addiction. And as well, this is based on swimming that's been done here historically isn't it mm. there's there's photos of this exact area yeah taken before, on that before indoor pools were built before that everybody swam in the river my mother was brought up in cambridge and she learned to swim in the side river here in the 1930s you had to swim as a child you had to show you could swim in the in the shallow side river before you were allowed in the main river and there were people actually in charge of all this well that's probably changed quite a lot today there isn't really a body or governing body that does look after swimmers in wild rivers is there and I, I mean that brings me on to I guess a more general question it's not quite the the picturesque clear colourless water of the Maldives there is a it is a dark kind of murky green isn't it the river cam so do you feel safe when you get in and out is this is there any worry about the cleanliness of the water uh, yes there are concerns about the water quality and we are downstream of uh, water treatment plants uh, the water quality does vary there are people who heroically monitor the uh, the water quality through the year we know there are times when the, the bacterial load is higher some of that is due to release from sewage work some of that is due to more suspension of particles in the water when the river flow is higher and it's hard to separate out those those two effects and how do you feel, Nikki? Is there any fear when you get in? Or uh, I certainly think about it more when it's flooded and there's been heavy rainfall. Um, I think it, you have to be more sensible then, and, and I tend to keep my head out of the water. But I, it doesn't stop me swimming, but I, I do think about that. Right, well, saying that, I think I've put it off long enough now. Yes, I better, you better go you've in. Go I better get in as well. Go on then, before I dip my toe in the water let me catch you up to speed so the plan is that we're going on a river trip down the river cam right into the heart of cambridge we'll be stopping at sites of scientific importance on the way so hopefully we'll also get a chance to leaf through a couple of history books too sport wildlife technology all to come but first we better meet captain peter which we'll do straight after this god it's gonna be so cold okay don't build it up okay (laughs) All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. (laughs) This is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Well, I'm not sure how you've wrangled this, Harry. I'm, I can see we're avo- approaching our, our vessel here. It looks pretty plush. It does look pretty plush. The Princess Charlotte. The Princess Charlotte of EcoCam Trips. And we're about to be introduced to our skipper, Pete. 
and Ian Webb from Cambridgeshire Wildlife Trust. Well, let's go say hello, shall we? Hello, Peter. Good morning. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having us on your boat. It's a pleasure. Morning, Peter. And what a vessel as well, hey? Yeah, Princess Charlotte's uh, a lovely eco boat powered by solar panels on the roof. And what a better day to get it out and about on the river with you. Absolutely. So that's where the eco and eco cam trips comes from. Yes, yeah, absolutely. We've, we're trying to do our bit for the environment and um, especially with Ian here today, need to make sure that uh, everything's done properly in a clean way that uh, preserves the wildlife and the integrity of the river. Well, that segues us on very nicely to Ian. Nice to meet you, Ian. Yeah, nice to meet you. And what might we see today? Well, who knows? It's always an adventure going on the river because um, you never know what you're going to see. But, you know, more hens, ducks, swans usual fare, but we might see a kingfisher, might see a grass snake swimming along the edge, water voles, there'll be lots of dragonflies, damselflies, fish leaping out of the water, but uh, it's always wonderful being on the river, and it's always a surprise what we're going to see. I'm chuffed, I'm really excited. Pete, are we ready? We are, yeah, we'll cast off in a moment, if you'd like to get yourselves on board. Thank you very much. Right, gentlemen, here we go. As you can hear, the boat is uh, lovely and quiet, just a little hum from the electric motor. And there we go, it's official, we've weighed anchor. We've been out this morning, James and I, in the, in the water ourselves, and obviously we're sort of preserving that by on our trip today, being on your electric boat, as you've said. I mean, do you see many of these actually on the water? And, and what's going on? What's this bit of tech? Is it half decent? Yeah, uh, we believe it to be a, a unique boat in the UK. It's an electric catamaran. Um, and then we converted it to solar panels in the, the last couple of years. So, uh, yeah, we think it's um, a very special boat because it doesn't use any fossil fuels. It's virtually silent. And at the end of the boat's life, the boat's built of aluminium and it can be recycled completely itself. We would quite happily power the boat all day, top the batteries up as well, and that would give us about four or five hours of evening cruising, even when the sunlight's disappeared. How much power do you need to get this thing going? Currently we're using about one kilowatt and the solar panels are generating about two and a half kilowatt. Oh, fantastic. And for the rest of the day, where are we off to? What's this journey going to look like? Well, we started off at our main moorings at the Plough at Fenditton, just on the northern edge of Cambridge. And we're currently travelling upstream in towards the city centre. We're just coming round Ditton Corner and uh, if you draw an imaginary line across the river... This is the city boundary, so we're leaving Fenditton behind and here is Cambridge in front of us, but it doesn't look like it because there's cows in the meadow, there's ducks and ducklings directly in front of us, there's people wandering around. This could be somewhere out in the East Anglian Fens, not a mile and a half from the city centre. Looking over the side of the river, the water looks quite clear and you can see down towards the riverbed, but that is a slight problem that the river's not flowing that much at the moment. When we get down to Jesus Lock in town, you'll see that the weir is hardly flowing at all. And that means the river is stationary and there's lots of weeds growing up through the river, which is good in some ways, but it does make navigation a bit tricky sometimes. During the winter, it's a completely different story. The river turns brown with all the sediment that gets washed out from the fields. And at that stage, the river's flowing very fast. We're currently about three or four inches below the normal river level because it's not being topped up with fresh water all the time. So, Ian, following on from what Harry was talking about with Pete, the, the stillness of the water is one of the things that, that strikes us as we're 
gliding down it. What can we take from how that will impact the environment? Um, so yeah, the, the lack of rainfall we've had this spring has really had an impact on the flow of the fresh water into the, into the river. Um, that impacts on not just the quality of the water. As Pete mentioned, it's really quite still. There's not much flow going on. The, fresh, the regular fresh water from showers and storms, etc., throughout the year helps dilute any pollutants that are found in the water and the, the, sort of, uh, the runoff from farming, which inadvertently happens. Um, and, oh, sorry, it's just a grey heron just heading our way. Oh, amazing. It's coming right for us. It is. It's going to go through the middle. <laughs> that is beautiful. Very nice. Uh, and with the lack of flow means that the build-up of water plants. We can see there's curled, curled pondweed in there. I saw some um, water milfoil all growing in the in the bed of the in the bed of the channel, which is great. But when there's a low flow, it really does get quite thick and can clog up the river. And it's not just the lack of rainfall in the spring that's the issue. It's the over abstraction of water so yeah a lot of the river cam water comes from chalk streams of which england has an international responsibility it's a very scarce habitat in in, in the globe um and we'll be seeing one in a bit actually um along stourbridge common those water bodies are fed by chalk water that rises from the chalk aquifers that are you know, beneath south cambridgeshire which is quite a unique habitat the aquifers you know what an aquifer is is a, a sort of subterranean reservoir of water that um, is, is charged by rainfall mm. so when the rain falls on the ground it, some of it runs off into rivers and streams etc but a lot of it percolates into the ground and it sort of collects in a big underground reservoir in the chalk mm. uh, at certain points at a certain level where the chalk surface is broken that water bubbles up so it springheads so there's quite a few in South Cambridgeshire nine wells just south of Cambridge is a good example and where we'll be looking at Coldham's Brook, that rises in Cherry Hinton, which is in Cambridge as well. So that water flows from those spring heads, as all water does, wants to go downhill. So eventually it, it's it created these habitats, these streams, these water features that are really quite unique. And because of the nature of the water, it being very clean, because it's, there's very little pollutants, it's come straight from the ground. And it's a very constant temperature as well, about 10 degrees throughout the year. I find that amazing that the temperature of the water stays so consistent. All, all year round from, because it's coming straight from the ground um, yeah and it's being and obviously now there's lots of water coming off roads and arable land etc and that's why you have issues with flooding you know with lots of hard impermeable land when it rains and something you know as we have more and more experience of stochastic rainfalls so and really heavy downpours that water's got nowhere to go so it just flows into the drains and flows into the rivers and that causes either localised flooding if the drainage isn't sufficient to remove that water or it causes flooding in the river when all the water joins and sort of adds to what's already there. I could just spot, we're getting to the, uh, where Coldham's Brook, a chalk stream, now enters the cam on the edge of Stourbridge Common. It's quite picturesque, isn't it? <laughs> it is very nice. You know, nature is wonderful when, you get the, when it gets the opportunity to show, show off itself. But what have we got there on the riverbank? Because there's a, a bit of pink sprouting yeah, out and so there's draping green. I can see branched burr reed, you've got uh, greater willow herb, You've got a moorhen chick sitting on a rock. You've got some water mint. There's some gypsy wort. I know you said that these types of habitat are quite rare and England has a real duty to protect them. Firstly, what do they bring about that we need to protect? And secondly, are you working with the Wildlife Trust to help look after them? There's about 200 chalk streams or chalk-fed streams and rivers in the world, and we have about 85% of them in England. So as a habitat, which 
It is really quite special. Um, it is really quite rich for invertebrate and plant life and is indicative of good quality habitat. We have a great responsibility to make sure we're looking after it as well as we can. And that is difficult because, yes, we can uh, change the sort of physical nature of these streams and rivers, but it's the amount and the quality of the water that is key that makes the habitat so special, and that is a lot harder to manage. My colleague Ruth Hawksley is a, an amazingly active person working to enhance um, these chalk streams where possible, engaging with the landowner to introduce features that would have been present in a natural chalk stream but have been lost due to over-engineering, putting in gravel beds, putting in more meandering. You know, The nature of how rivers and streams have been managed over the years is to get rid of the water as quickly as possible powering water mills etc and agriculture i suppose as well oh yeah wanting to drain the land so we can grow food to feed our population which is you know an important thing to do and so ruth's just putting some of these features back in like you said meanders gravel pits what else is she doing she's putting in big lumps of wood which is quite exciting just to help the the water move more within the channel let it become more natural and one of the issues with um chalk streams is um there isn't that much flow because they're spring fed it's not like a, a raging torrent up in the Yorkshire Dales or something with a, a large amount of energy in the water to do a lot of movement of, of, of gravels etc these rivers are quite gentle and so once a feature is lost it's very difficult for that the volume of water to actually make an effect that's why we have to introduce these gravels because a lot of the gravels would have been scooped out when they were straightened or deepened to allow the passage of water to be quicker etc and, and as Peter now pootles us away from Coldham's Brook, are there any particular success stories from the local area where Ruth's gone in and changed the dynamic flow of the river? Um, there's this work starting to look at Coldham's Brook. Hobson's Conduit is another one. Uh, and outside of the city, there's Hofferbrook, there's Mill River. There's actually places within... Um, the river cam itself where these features are being put in and also one of the the things working with other in you know i'm mentioning other organizations is partnership work working to help remove barriers um within the the rivers and streams that hinder migration of fish so um weirs to control water flow etc or or if they can't be removed putting in features to allow fish to pass through so if you go to byron's pool in south cambridge there's a a bypass channel which bypasses, as the name suggests, the, the weir at Byron's Pool, but allows fish to migrate upstream. What fish are we talking? Oh, there's about 18 species of fish there. Was, Here, uh, in the River Cam? Yeah. yeah what? Yeah, you, you don't, they're all under the water, you see. That's the thing, you can't really see them. <laughs> it's a challenge. So they, with a lot of the things looking at the health of rivers... And what are um, a few of those? Eel, brown trout, pike, perch, dace, rud, chub... Pint. I yeah, think you've nearly got the whole 18 possibly, there. Possibly, really. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's really, there is a really rich um, fish fauna within the river, which is great, but it could be so much better, and you just need to create those habitats within the river channel to allow them to find those places to live, but also making sure that water is there constantly flowing clean um, and healthy. So just to give you a description of where we are at the, on the river at the moment, we've just come under the Green Dragon footbridge, its proper name is the Stourbridge footbridge but the Green Dragon pub is just at the end of the bridge and as we come along this little stretch with all the liverboard boats just off in front of us got a small herd of cattle Um, you were off the boat a a little earlier on looking at Stourbridge Common we're just coming to the tail end of it 
and Ian was talking about the cattle that come and graze the meadow. Well, here they are standing underneath one of the trees. There's a, a horse trough fed by the water point just here, so the cattle come and have a drink here. And uh, so it's quite natural for people to come across them, just standing around, milling around, not doing a lot. And off in front of us, the tall chimney of the, the old waterworks building, the old technology museum, just here on Riverside. And little does James know, I've got a bit of a surprise for him because we're actually visiting that, so we'll be pulling in in just a couple seconds. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the naked scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, the Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask the Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. Right, well, I've brought you here, James, to the Cambridge Museum of Technology. We're going to be meeting Jinx, and as you can see, this is actually the highest building in the whole of Cambridge. I'm not actually sure what it's for, which we're definitely going to find out, but it kind of looks like a big old chimney right next to the River Camp. It's a special treat for us, Jinx, this. Yes, yeah, well, you know, there's nobody else here, so... <laughs> why is that? Why, why is it closed? Um, the museum's actually only open at the weekends at the moment. OK. Um, we are really reliant on, on volunteers, and we just don't have that many people that volunteer. So at the moment, we're only open Saturdays and Sundays. And can you tell me, the Cambridge Museum of Technology, what's the story? Because this didn't look like it was originally built to be a museum. No, very much not. It was a very, very practical building. These two very beautiful engines uh, in this main engine hall actually originally pumped sewage. So in the 1800s, there were several outbreaks of cholera in Cambridge because the can was an open sewer. After several outbreaks of cholera, it was decided that they needed to treat the sewage somehow, get it out of the river, and this station was built to pump that sewage to Milton, where the sewage work still currently is. They're looking to move it, but it is still currently being treated in the same place it was over 120 years ago. And could you talk me through what I'm looking at here? This is visually very impressive. Well, they're stationary steam engines. Uh, these two, as far as we know, are the only two left in the world, and they both work. Um, we also have, around the room, some smaller engines that were originally used to pump water into the boiler from steam. So originally they would have pumped um, water from the river, but now we don't do that. We, we come from the mains and we then pump it that way. If I were to come back another time, when might I be able to see these engines in action? So we have just got back into steam. We had our first steam event in many years in April because we'd had the boiler refurb, so we couldn't produce steam before that. And then we had another one in June. We're looking to have another steam event in September. But When you say a steam event? Yeah, so a steam event is basically when the museum or any place that runs steam engines will raise steam, runs engines... And it's a bit of a family event, really. And there is very much a steam community. So it's not just people running steam engines. We are like a small family, and, and we work as a community together to do that. So the colloquialism is steam up. 
So if you're a steamy, if you're in the steam community, you say, we're having a steam up. <laughs> I wonder if we could have a look at some of the components of the, these enormous engines. So when we run this, before we start the engine at a steam up, I will turn to the audience and say, how do you think this steam engine works? And pretty much 99 times out of 100, people will say that big wheel spins round. And it doesn't, because it's connected to a tiny beam. And actually, that wheel only revolves 90 degrees. It rocks backwards and forwards. So we often say our engine is very beautiful, but not very dramatic. It's always kids that notice it, never grown-ups. Grown-ups never notice that that doesn't spin. It's always the kids going, well, there are two rods going through the floor. And Mm. there you go. So the engines that we can see right now... That's not everything that's going on here when when the whole thing's operational? No, absolutely not. This is a very attractive tip of an iceberg. Um, There are several floors below us. Some of them are now flooded with water. Where next? I can show you through to the gas engine room. Let's do that. It looks kind of similar, Jinx, to what's in the other room, but I'm sure it's, it's very different. What can you tell me about what I'm looking at right now? Right, so these are very different. These are gas engines. The problem with a steam engine is you can't just flick a switch and get it to go. It needs to be warmed through, it needs to sort of be prepared, it needs to also work under load. Not so with the gas engines. You can pretty much flick a switch on these and they will start working. They don't need to have a load on them. So as the size of Cambridge grew, there was more population, more sort of flash flooding because obviously the ground had been covered so the ground wasn't and the water wasn't soaking away in the same way they needed more engines and this was the ideal complement to the steam engines because basically you could flick a switch and off you go how much water did they need to move now that's a tough one and obviously it depended on how much rain there had been and how much sewage there was so i can't really give you an exact answer off the top of my head but it had to move three miles up a slight hill, as, as hilly as the fens get, mm-hmm. to the sewage pumping station. So it was quite an ask. What sort of effect did that have on the cholera outbreak? Just having the steam engines here basically stopped that because the can was no longer an open sewer. So as soon as that was being dealt with, no more cholera. Jinx, we've entered a bit of a cavernous expanse with bits of machine everywhere. What's going on in here? So this is the boiler house. So obviously you can't run steam engines without steam, and this is where the steam is generated. So it's a big old place. The biggest boiler is about the size, it's about the height of a house and about half the width of a sort of a fairly decent-sized house. When the plant was working, the engine room would have been pristine. So nice, shiny ceramic tiles, very, very beautiful. Boiler house very much the opposite so you can tell it's dusty you can tell that things were burnt in here all the walls are kind of this off-white it it doesn't look run down but it does look like it's the business end it really does how does it work all our boilers here are babcock and wilcox and that that company has been going for a very very long time the boilers are all water tube boilers so inside the boilers they have big tubes filled with water and you put fire under it and that creates the steam Mm. initially fuel was pretty free the council collected rubbish the rubbish was sorted up that top area which is called top bay anything with a high calorific value was burnt 
um, and other things could have been reused or recycled. Later on, the, the destructor boilers were adapted when the calorific value of the rubbish went down. The fronts of the boilers were changed so they could be stoked with coal. And then the final, the grand lady of this area is boiler number four. So boiler number four was put in in 1923, so she's nearly 100 years old. And she is really the reason that I ended up working at the museum. Why is that? I was a volunteer here for a while and they needed somebody to project manage the restoration of this historic boiler. She was in a bit of a bad state. The problem with um, industrial heritage is that when it's in its working life, it's constantly being used and, and maintained and all those things that you do when you have a working plant. When you have something that then becomes static, it becomes prone to rust and decay because it's not being used all the time. And she had basically failed at a steam-up in 2014. Right in the middle of the steam-up, some of her tubes burst. The curator at the time, alongside with some of the trustees, applied for a heritage lottery grant, and basically they needed somebody to run the project to restore the boiler. So that's where I came into the museum. What's the process of restoring something as complicated as this? Well, the thing is, it's not complicated... When I um, came here and I was talking to the subcontractors before we started work, they basically said, oh, it's not complicated, it's a big kettle, which might be an oversimplification, but not by much. So you're heating water, you're putting it into a drum, and the steam's coming off the drum um, and powering the engines. But unlike the boiler you might have at home, most of the walls of this boiler are made of brick. So the big complication was we had to take the wall one of the walls down before we could get inside to sort out the tubes that was complicated because we didn't know what was historic and what wasn't Um, and because this is a protected building we had to sort of establish how old the wall was and then we found out it'd been rebuilt in the 80s by the volunteers so then it wasn't a problem anymore Um, we took the wall down We removed all the tubes. That sounds very easy. It took a long time. Um, And then there were some innards that needed to be replaced and then tubes went back in, wall went back up. The whole process took well over a year because we had to have different contractors on site at different points. I'm desperate now to see the rest of that iceberg we talked about earlier. Well, just because it's you guys, I can do Uh, that. (laughs) Jinx, you're an angel. (laughs) So slightly my sandals. Yes. Not really appropriate footwear for any engineering. Not not for a place of work like this. Down the hatch. (laughs) We've opened up a sort of cellar type area. There's some ominous humming going on, emitting from it, and a sort of rusty looking ladder that we're about to climb down. I mean, yeah. after you, Harry. It, it, it looks it looks very traditional. <laughs> what I will say. Yes, thinks. yeah, it's it's not rusty and it's perfectly fine. But the ominous humming you can hear is the ventilation system because this is a confined space. So obviously we want to adhere to health and safety. So even though this is a very old building, we've got modern engineering practice here. So we have it just to make sure the air is nice and fresh under the engines. Oh, how slim are these people, James? <laughs> Uh, slimmer than you. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> it really feels like the belly of the beast down here, doesn't it? Yeah. What an absolute trip back in time it feels like. Yeah. And suddenly we're surrounded by all these 
old components. So you've got two sets of pumps here. You've got what are called air pumps, and you have the actual main pumps that would be pumping the sewage. So already where we are, it is a very high ceiling, and there are several uh, of those below us. Like I said before, a couple of them are actually flooded through. So this might look very unattractive and unappealing, but like with the, the beautiful engines up the top, we need to work on these. So and on the top of each section of the pump, we have these little yellow boxes, which you probably wouldn't notice. But every time we start the engines, we have to pour oil in there and we have wicks like you would have in a candle. And that helps the system all lubricate. Wow. It's never ending. There's always something to do, always something to prettify. I'm concerned basically with these engines in the main engine room but there's a whole site with other things on it that need to be done we also are looking to encourage more young people into engineering so in the future we're looking to have a program where young people can come and work alongside some of our volunteers and get some engineering experience as well so i think that's one of the next big things and obviously steam ups we have to get ourselves down to the next one what's fascinating is later on we've spoken about cholera and sewage in the cam well later on we're speaking to Susanna. they're doing some real live time monitoring of the pathogens and bacteria that are in the river at the moment so we're going literally from the history of the river cam and sewage to the future so jinx thanks for grounding us in such good knowledge yep thanks for coming the naked scientists podcast is produced in association with spitfire cost-effective voice internet and ip engineering services for uk businesses find out how spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk so what have we got here peter well, on one side of the river, we've got the uh, terrace housing of Riverside. And off to our starboard side to the right, the Cam Rowers Boathouse, one of the uh, local rowing teams, alongside the more modern boathouse for three of the colleges, King's, Selwyn and Churchill, and the college crests above each of the doors. The building looks a little bit like a fire station with all the doors, but behind it there's a whole uh, collection of rowing boats grey heron just wading around in the oh, yeah. section just there and that leads round to Admiral's Close so there's a little cut behind here creating a little island in the middle of wildlife which is lovely and if you're really lucky there's a breeding pair of kingfisher in here I spot it about once every two or three weeks but you've got to be really quick as that blue flash darts along the river surface some really nice little inlets that have always been created for wildlife as we go along. But the other thing that I'm noticing is just that on the right-hand side, all the banks are littered with rowing clubs. They, there really are quite a few down this stretch, aren't there? Yes, with uh, over 30 different colleges making up the collective Cambridge University, each college has its own rowing teams, multiple teams. Some of them have a second or even a third team. And if you tot all the uh, rowing boats up, there's nearly a thousand of them that can be out on the river at uh, at one time on a two and a half mile stretch of river. So it can get very, very busy with rowing at times. And with that being said, we're going to get somebody on board. Peter's going to pull in here. And there he is. That's Alistair Taylor. He's going to be coming on board. And uh, he's telling us a little bit about the heart and then the tradition of rowing in Cambridge, which of course we had to touch on. He's part of the university's boat club. So uh, if Peter's going to pull in for us, we'll welcome him aboard. Alistair, how are you doing? What's it doing, 
Have you heard Alistair before, Peter? Because he's nimbly jumped on here. He must be a man that's uh, used to the water. Not at all. It's, uh, we've, I think we've had you for... You've looked after a few of our guys and they've gone back and forth and done a few bits and pieces. Which club have we just picked you up from? So you've just picked me up from Downing College Boat Club, which is one of the top clubs in Cambridge. It has developed athletes from novices to Olympics in several examples, under-23s, Annabelle Vernon, who is a multiple world champion, uh, multiple Olympian, Olympic medalist. Basically learned her trade there. They refined what she'd got as a school kid in in, uh, Cornwall. Taya Isabel learned to row there, went to under-23s and medalled there. Truly impressive place for development, and we're very lucky as a university to have those clubs. How many clubs and how many boats are there, do you know? Uh, there are 31 clubs. I would hesitate to put a number on the boats. I would say probably five, 600 just in the university. Crikey. Yeah. Wow. And, of course, you've got the clubs outside of the university to consider as well. Uh, another thing that Peter mentioned was we're obviously on quite a narrow river. It definitely feels that way. But he said sometimes when all of these people come out in force, you can get up to a 1,000 boats on the water. I know that there is a bit of a competition coming up this week what is it that we've got so we've just come off the university may bumps we're coming into now town bumps so we do have i think six divisions men's and women's so that's 200 240 boats so we're looking at over 2,000 people racing in town bumps and you don't often see rowers carrying out the sport alongside one another on the water but this is going to be slightly different, isn't it? It's quite an exciting time. It's possibly the silliest thing you can do in a rowing boat. Cambridge, our river is so narrow, you can't row side by side for more than half a mile or so. So what they do is they put 20 boats in a row, put about a length of clear water between them, push them out the river, and then there's a thumping big cannon that goes and you try and hit the boat in front of you and not get hit by the boat behind you. I, I, I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun, but it also sounds like... Uh, you've got to be slightly careful of that expensive bit of kit you've got. Would I say irresponsible, perhaps? I think when you're racing, you can think you're being careful, but you just want to get get the boat in front of you. There are breakages, there are all sorts of things, but thankfully we've advanced well beyond where 130-plus years ago, Clare College had one of their coxswains killed. No. Uh, Trinity, a Trinity Hall boat didn't stop in time because their Clare boat had made a really hard bump. Apparently the bow went straight through his heart. Right. I, I mean, things must have changed since then. Thankfully, yeah. It's been a, quite a safety innovation. I think immediately afterwards they started putting these rubber or gutter percher balls on the bow to make sure you can't actually go through people. If they fall off, it's pretty scary. And we're just coming up. I know this college on the right-hand side. That's Trinity College. That's quite a big one as well, isn't it? Trinity College is the biggest college in Cambridge. Again, it's another one that's been incredibly successful in developing athletes. The stroke of the women's blue boat this year, Imogen Grant, learnt to row there. She grew up in Cambridge but had never rowed. She novice there, did the Cambridge University Dev Squad. In her second year, made two university crews, rowed under 23 world championships. Now she's an Olympian, she's a world champion, and she's also a med student as well. She's just an incredible, incredible all-rounder. One of those people that really puts me to shame at a pub quiz, I'd say, Alistair. In fairness, she puts all of us to shame. <laughs> and it's fantastic being in the heart of Cambridge, talking about something that is at the root of Cambridge traditions. But it would be rude not to mention the boat race as well. 
for anyone that's listening who doesn't know, it's a massive event in the UK where Cambridge rowing team takes on the Oxford rowing team. I mean, how did that all get started, Alistair? Well, there were two schoolboys from Harrow. Both of them were pretty certain their university was the best. So the challenge went down at the end of 1828 and the first boat race was in Henley in 1829. Ever since then, other than 2021 when it was at Ely, it's been on the river course at Putney. It is our reason to be. It is a fantastic event and it has people who've learnt to row at Cambridge or Oxford and novice to people who've come from the Olympics as gold medalists. And I would like to mention the women's rowing in particular because it, it seems like you really nurture and have a lot of successful young female athletes. I mean, did that part of the club start and originate with the men's team as well? That took a long, long time to happen. The first women's boat race was 1927 and that was a very daring thing back then. But even then, they weren't allowed to race side by side. It was a processional for a time trial and style. Thankfully, we've come a long, long way since then. Now we're all on the Tideway, all the same sponsorship, and particularly in Cambridge, we now have one club which brought together the three legacy clubs, the men's club, women's club, and the lightweights, all into one Cambridge club. And that's, that's been one of our big developments and something we're very proud of. And a real emphasis, it seems, throughout this chat has been just on novices coming through and, and really guess succeeding there's a stat going around whether it's made up or not that about 50% of Cambridge students will row at some point there's 30,000 students at Cambridge there are going to be a lot of good athletes and when you combine that with great coaching and elite athletes elite student athletes coming in it's fantastic we had one of our men's athletes break a 5k world record on the rowing machine if you've ever been on there it's frankly ridiculous what he did um (laughs) The benchmark for sort of elite slash international for two 2,000 metres is six minutes. Tom went faster than that pace for 5k. Oh, he outrageous. is a He is a freak show. Which I'm sure he'll appreciate you saying. Oh, he's and, a wonderful person And as well. where are we now? So we've just passed the last boathouse on the cam uh, before Jesus Lock, uh, Christ College, which is one of the old, again one of the oldest boat clubs in Cambridge. And we're now coming past a lot of the resident barges on the on the river coming towards Jesus Lock and the Jesus Green Lido which as an Australian which has really surprised me that you can have an open air pool brutally cold and 100 <laughs> yards long it's fantastic <laughs> Alistair I know you've actually got yourself a lunch on the river sorted so let's drop you off and thanks so much for, for coming on and sharing a bit of history about the rowing in the river it's my pleasure it's fantastic place and the history of it is what makes it so important and so wonderful so coming along the river the whole of that section there to our right hand side should be flowing with water but it's only a small segment of a what a 50, 60 foot weir and only about 5 to 6 foot is actually flowing which gives you a clue to how little water is flowing in the river at the moment. We'll go a little closer to the weir and uh, have a look. This is one of the features that are going to want to try and get a bypass channel to allow fish to move upstream because fish will migrate throughout you know, uh, a river channel you know, going up, usually higher upstream to, to spawn and moving down um, after they've done that. But when there's barriers in the way, that natural, you know, the natural aspect of their way of life can't be carried out, so the, 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 the fish populations are impoverished. So linking these bits of rivers up again is really essential to maintaining that health 
for those fish populations which in turn will help the health of the river. So obviously it's quite difficult, it's been quite a large structure, but just finding ways to allow a, 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 you know, some water to be passing through in such a way in a gradient so the fish can travel up. So this is as close as we can get to the weir. Um, next to the weir are the Environment Agency sluices that are automatically managed to keep the river from flooding. So if there's any risk of the city centre and the university buildings flooding, these gates will automatically open and dump the water down into the lower river down towards Stourbridge Common. Um, but the last time the big flood was 2001, when the river was actually five foot up. So the whole of the lock, the water points, Jesus Green Banks here were all underwater. So you can imagine the volume of water that was rushing over the weir. In the background we can just hear the waterfall effect of the weir, but as we can see there's only about three, four foot of it actually flowing. There should be a whole cascade like Niagara Falls happening and it's just not flowing at the moment. So the river looks nice to the untrained eye. We've actually got about four or five inches down on where the river level should be. And I think, Peter, talking about the flooding and also the aesthetic of the water brings us quite nicely onto the health of the habitat. I can see Susanna and Anne outside just on the banks. So James and I are going to nip off and say farewell to you and obviously a massive thank you for having us and uh, go and speak to them a little bit about some research that they've been carrying out using some citizen scientists as well to look at bacteria and health in this ecosystem. I'm Anne Millan from Cam Valley Forum and we've been taking water samples and getting them analysed to look at the water quality. And I'm Susanna Salter, uh, I'm a research assistant at the Department of Veterinary Medicine and I've also been monitoring E. coli in the river. So Harry and I had a dip in the river earlier, did some wild swimming with a local swimming club and it strikes me now that it probably would have been a good idea to speak to you guys before we jumped in. Should we be worried? Well, the key thing is, where were you swimming? If you were swimming a couple of miles downstream of Hazlingfield Sewage Works, I really wouldn't have recommended it. But if you were in the popular swimming spots in Cambridge, like Newnham Riverbank Club and Sheep's Green, I think it's probably OK, but just so long as you didn't drink anything. So I've been measuring a site that's a couple of miles upstream of Cambridge at Byron's Pool, which is in a nature reserve between Grantchester and Trumpington. And I've been doing frequent sampling, so weekly sampling of the river, and measuring E. coli levels. So E. coli is a faecal indicator organism. And week by week it changes quite a lot, actually, and depending on the season, depends on what the the levels are like in the river. Why are you looking for indicators of faecal matter? It's an indication of whether there's poo in the water. And from our point of view as as a community group, we're looking for quite a simple way of seeing, is this water safe? Personally, I don't want to swim in poo, and the bathing water directive sets thresholds at which the, uh, the levels should be, and so we're trying to see whether the water would be classified as good. And you're a sort of community-driven organisation, and how do you cooperate with perhaps more scientific outlets? We've got lots of volunteers, but we haven't got very much money. We've done about six batches of samples over the last year at typically 20 sites, going as far upstream as about 10 to 15 miles upstream of Cambridge and a few miles downstream of Cambridge. And then we send our samples, water samples that we collect, off to a professionally accredited lab to be analysed. So that's the real sort of science bit. And then we put them on the website so anybody can see what they are. But then Susanna does the more detailed work on a particular site. 
I started looking at the river because a few years ago I was involved in a detailed survey called Puntseek, the Puntseek Project, where we were sampling from different places along the cam and then sequencing the DNA in the samples to have a look at what bacteria were present in the river. Lots of interesting results came out of that, but one that piqued my interest was that there was a kind of a gut-associated pattern in some places, not all the time though, and one of the places that we saw that was at Byron's Pool. And so I wondered whether it was something that was a really rare event or whether it was actually something that happened regularly. And so we thought if we did this pilot study to look in much more detail with much more frequent sampling that we'd be able to see whether that was something that happened often. And can I ask the both of you to just summarise your sampling techniques for me? We take a clean sample bottle that we get from the labs and we attach it with elastic bands to the end of a rake that go about three metres long and we dip it into a particular depth in the water take our samples and then they all have to get to the lab by I think it's one o'clock in order to be analysed. So it takes us probably a few weeks sometimes before we've got the results back. My sampling technique on the other hand the collection of the samples is very similar but instead of looking at a wide range of places I'm looking at one place but really high frequency. I do the testing myself in my laboratory in the Department of Veterinary Medicine and some of the assays that I do are very similar to uh, what's done in the commercial labs. But I'm also comparing that with other kinds of methods. I collect my samples on my way to work in the morning, so they go straight from the river into the lab. Can you talk us through the results? So the main focus of our work was to try to find out where the sources were, or at least where the major sources were of the pollution that we know is coming into the CAM. And what our work seems to be showing is that the Cambridge sewage works isn't too bad, usually. Sometimes, just once, it was absolutely dreadful. But the main offender seems to be Hazlingfield sewage works which is a few miles upstream of Cambridge and possibly Melbourne sewage works so we've only done two readings there which is a little bit further still and sometimes we've seen leaks coming from the pipes going to the sewage works and so that's completely raw sewage that's flowing into the river that hopefully doesn't happen for very long because they go and fix it but We've literally seen raw sewage running down the bank into the river, which is really shocking and shouldn't be happening. Is this sewage in the water that you're describing enough to be harmful to the environment, to people? Sometimes. So the readings we got in June at Hazingfield were 17 times higher than the level that the Environment Agency would call poor Mm. quality. So, So that must be harmful. But on the other hand, a day later, we think it was probably okay. So one of the things that we're really seeing is the way it varies. Everybody goes and has a poo in the morning, and a few hours later it gets through the sewage works, and the levels are then higher. By the afternoon, it's not so bad. So what we really, really want, and probably Susanna does too, is an instrument that would allow us to measure in real time, continuously, what's going on. Do you agree? Do your results concur, Susanna? Yeah, so the results that I've had have shown that in winter the levels are quite high. My sampling site is a couple of kilometres downstream from Hazlingfield and some of the highest levels that I've recorded have coincided with you know, known recorded sewage spills during very bad weather. So this is a storm overflow. This is something that happens when you have really heavy rain and very bad weather. And to stop the system from being um, overloaded, they release partially treated effluent. The highest levels that I've seen were last year, sort of towards the end of October, which were in excess of 
10,000 CFU per 100 mil, which is quite a lot. So we were talking about acceptable levels that you would have in bathing waters. Normally that would be significantly below 1,000 CFU, so this is very high. And 10,000 is like if you were to take a gram of fresh faeces and mix it in about 10 litres of water, you'd get a similar result from that. So it is quite a high level to be having a significant distance downstream of the sewage plant. But there are other times where the levels have been quite persistently unacceptably high, but it doesn't map with one of these storm events or extremely heavy rain, and the water company are not reporting that they have had a spill on those dates. So I don't think that the only explanation of that, of course, animals can also be a source of waste material getting into the rivers, but also it's possible that where you have silty stretches along the river that when you have very heavy rain, for example, it may not be enough to cause a problem at the sewage plant, but it does kick up all of the silt that's at the bottom of the river. The river becomes very turbid. And if you have some of this material sort of surviving in the silt at the bottom of the river that's normally settled down, when it all gets resuspended in the water, you may see your levels temporarily rise up. And certainly in terms of how long the levels stay high, that very high level back in October, it stayed above 10,000 CFU for two weeks. So it's not quite as simple as just waste going into the water and then, you know, being washed through and then it not being a problem anymore. Those results kind of alarm me when I think about how frivolously we, we dived into to the river earlier. I mean, maybe I'd have kept my mouth more tightly pursed than I did. <laughs> I collected a sample um, two days ago and I got my most recent results this morning and actually this week the levels are fairly low so they're around about sort of five to six hundred CFU so that's not quite so bad and I swim in the river too although not in the winter. So, <laughs> and, and we took a reading a couple of weeks ago from pretty much where you were swimming and I seem to remember that the reading was about 400 which yeah. is, is okay but I would keep my mouth shut. And, and I too swim in the river, but I keep my mouth shut. <laughs> and moving forward with the, the data you've collected, what can we do with it? What, were the, what are the next steps? We're using it to apply pressure to the people who are causing the pollution to clean it up. So, I mean, First we want to find out where it is in a proper scientific way as well as we can. And so clearly some of it is a responsibility of Anglian Water who own Hazelingfield Sewage Works and they are actually seem to be really listening to us and we hope are being responsive and as I say, we, we are starting to explore whether we can get hold of an instrument to let us monitor really continuously, because we also strongly suspect that it's not just the sewage works that's the problem. Earlier this year, we were doing some tests outside Cambridge Sewage Works, and one of our heroes was taking sample of the effluent coming out of the sewage works, and there was brown bits in it. And yes, it was what we feared it was. It was poo. And we discovered that this was because somebody had fly-tipped some slurry, liquid poo, basically, at the inlet of the sewage works, and it had flown through, completely overwhelming the system, and that's why there was bits of poo at that instant going into the river. For someone who doesn't know a lot about these types of things, what you've said to me so far today sounds quite alarming. Susanna, is it something we should be more worried about? When I started sampling, I was surprised at how high the levels were too, and clearly this is something that we're looking at locally, but it is a really significant issue all around the country in rivers everywhere this is a nationwide issue and because people enjoy our rivers and also our coastlines as well for swimming and for recreation it's really important that people know that the water is going to be clean and in some places there is monitoring 
in place so that people know when there's been an event that means they can't swim there. But in other places, that's not the case. And for a lot of inland rivers, that's not the case. So, yeah, it is something that people really should be concerned about. And on top of that, the water companies need to have the power to tell developers that they can't build houses because they haven't got the sewage capacity, because that's part of the problem. And the other part of the problem is that, particularly in a dry place like Cambridge, we haven't really got much water in the aquifer. And so what they're doing is they pump water, clean water, out of the chalk aquifer to put into the river, to flow down the river, to dilute the sewage to acceptable levels. That is completely and utterly nuts. So we need to stop the problem at source, have good quality sewage works, not put excess numbers of development where it can't sustainably be. And that's what Cam Valley Forum are all about. That's what they're doing. That's right. And if, and if people want to be involved with what we're doing or check out our results, go and have a look on our website, which is camvalleyforum.uk. Well, Harry, it's a relief to hear that I swim this morning. I think we'll be all right. I think we will be all right. But it is interesting, isn't it, that it's probably something we need to think about in the future if we're going out, especially if you're brave enough to go in the winter. Yeah. Before speaking to those guys, honestly not something I'd ever considered... Now I'll be a lot more careful. Too true. Well, that's it, folks. You've finished your science tour down the River Cam with us. We've heard about the birth of the boat race, old-fashioned sewage systems and wild swimming. Now, if you'll be having a paddle in your local river, we'd love to hear from you, obviously. Do send us a picture on Twitter at Naked Scientists or send us an email to chris at nakedscientists.com. be great to see what you've been up to over the summer. From all of us here today on the river, well, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> 